Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Stress evolutionarily played a critical role. When you are being chased after an animal, your gut would shut down because the blood and your resources had to go to your legs so you could, you know, run away. And now with this hyper-stressed out lives that we live, our gut is constantly shutting down. It's not working properly. One of the treatments that we use for irritable bowel syndrome and to kind of help patients with irritable bowel syndrome is yoga, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, deep breathing. All of these things have actually been shown to help reduce symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. Sit down, enjoy that meal, because the way that your body deals with that food and handles it will determine whether or not you are going to experience irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. That's Dr. Serena Pasricha. And this is episode number 68 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, I hope you're well. It's always great to find ourselves together. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and much more to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Today, I sat down with leading gastroenterologist, Dr. Serena Pasricha, to talk about nutrition and gut health, specifically managing irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, which she has extensive clinical experience with. Serena has an unbelievable resume. She first studied biological anthropology and nutrition at the prestigious Harvard University, Before completing a medical degree at Northwestern, her residency and fellowship in North Carolina, a master's in science and clinical research, and on top of all of that, she has published extensively in the leading gastroenterology journals, is a wife and mother of two kids. IBS is one of those topics where there are a lot of social media gurus with really zero credentials bar an an anecdotal N equals one case study on themselves typically. Talking about healing it with all sorts of crazy foods, treatment e-books and products. I'm sure you, you may have come across this. And it's for this reason that I was so glad to get a tremendously qualified doctor who specializes in gut health to come on the show and break things down for us in a digestible manner with no agendas. So what is IBS? Who develops it? Do we know the underlying causes? Can it be healed? What can we do to reduce symptoms? You'll hear all of this and much more in this episode. Keeping this introduction short today, time to hear from Dr. Serena Pasricha. Friends, I'll see you on the other side.
Serena Pasrecha. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get a chance to chat with you today. Welcome to New York. You've, you've had a bit of a journey today. Tell us where you've come from. Yeah, so this morning I did procedures. So I do upper endoscopies and colonoscopies. I actually diagnosed somebody with colon cancer this morning. Oh, so no. that's very sad. I, I did a number of the procedures and then I hopped on a train from Delaware, which is my hometown, to come meet you here in New York. Okay, so tell me about Delaware. Where exactly is that? So Delaware is about three hours south of New York City, and it is a very small state. It's the second smallest state in the United States, but it's called the first state, and that's because it was the first state to sign the Declaration of Independence. Oh, there we go. So it's very cool. A little bit of history to that. (laughs) We take a lot of pride in our small state. (laughs) Okay, great. I'm pumped for dinner tonight. Actually, I went to where we're going tonight, but in LA, plant food and wine. That's yes. It, yeah? I, yeah. Went, I went there last week for the first time and it was great. Awesome. I can't wait to try it. You, you haven't been there? No, I haven't. No, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty damn good. It's one of uh, Matthew Kenny's restaurants. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You've heard of him? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he seems to be taking over New York and hospitality yeah. in general. Now, you mentioned you diagnosed someone with colon cancer. Yes. So before we get into this, how, How regularly are you doing that? Is it something that you're seeing a lot of? So I do procedures every half day, Monday through Friday, so two and a half days a week. And I'm probably diagnosing one to two people a week with colon cancer, which is really sad and unfortunate, but at least they're getting their colonoscopies. Colon cancer is a preventable disease if we can do their colonoscopies early. So the other patients that I saw today most of them did have polyps or precancerous growths that I was able to remove so I could prevent them from getting cancer. And then they have to come back every few years for follow-up. And what are those sort of precautionary screening recommendations for, for people? So that varies country to country. In the United States, we do screening colonoscopy starting at age 50. If you have a family member with colon cancer, then you need to get screened earlier. If you have any genetic disease or inflammatory bowel disease, you have to get screened earlier. And of course, if you have any warning signs like rectal bleeding, a change in your bowel habits, weight loss, then you need to talk with your doctor and get tested earlier. We could probably do a whole episode (laughs) just on colon cancer, right? That's right. And (laughs) diet and how that relates to colon cancer, yes. So, but today is is about irritable bowel syndrome, Mm -hmm. IBS. Before we... We do jump into that in the science and, and how to manage it and treat it. Maybe take us through your background, what life was like as a kid, and then your journey to where you are today as a gastroenterologist. Yeah. So like I said, I, I grew up in Delaware. I have a very small family. I have one sister who actually lives here in New York. And What's her name? Her name is Megan. Megan. Shout out to Megan. Yes, that's right. <laughs> she's, she's super cool. She's um, an investment banker, which is tough to do as a female. And uh, she has a nonprofit organization actually that we both started to help high school kids and middle school kids learn how to be leaders in their community and how to teach them how to be leaders through service. So you're going to get a chance to meet her tonight. What's that called? It's called Global Youth Help, Health, Education and Leadership Program. It's a nonprofit organization that we started. I was in college and she was in high school. It just shows you that, you know, you can start things early, even as a young person, you have a voice. And we really believe that service is the best way to develop leadership skills and you're getting a chance to help other people. 
So that's like a, it's a passion project of ours, something that both of us do on the side in addition to our full-time jobs. But yeah. yeah I'm looking forward to asking her about that. Yeah, yeah we, we've actually trained over 100,000 students worldwide. Wow. Yeah. So um, impressive. Yeah. It's, it's growing and doing well. And um, yeah, we'll talk more about so, that. So where did you guys grow up? So we grew up in Delaware and my parents immigrated to the United States. They're from India and they came in the 70s. And um, actually, there were not a lot of Indians when we grew up here in the States. And so our family was really quite close. My journey to nutrition probably started early because my parents in India, they practice a lot of Ayurveda medicine and homeopathy medicine. And both of those take into consideration your whole body and your whole being, but also incorporate a lot of plants into it, like homeopathy medicine. The medicines are derived from plants. So I kind of grew up with that around me, but not really understanding it. But I had a very supportive, happy family growing up and and we had a great life. And then actually when I was in second or third grade, I was involved in a really serious car accident. It was a life-threatening car accident. I had to be airlifted to the closest hospital. Actually, they, they didn't think that I was going to make it. Wow. I was in a coma. What happened? To you? Like somebody literally just hit our car. And my sister was in the car and my mom was in the car. And fortunately, they both were did okay and were basically able to walk out of the car. But the car hit right where I was mm-hmm. sitting. And then... I I was able to fortunately thank God and thank God to all the doctors and the medical staff and the nurses and the physical therapists because I was able to make it out of that car accident. I ended up having a neck dislocation. So for weeks I actually had to lie in the hospital bed and they lifted my head up and they had uh, weights on the other end and I had to lay in bed as they like lifted and stretched my neck and stretched my head. And that was like for weeks. That when, must have been pretty scary as a, as a kid, not knowing. Yeah, it was. Happening. It was really scary. I think my parents did a very good job of being positive and encouraging me. And you know, as, as a kid, I think at that time I didn't understand how serious it was. Like I saw myself because our accident was on like the front page of the paper, and so I saw those things. But I don't think I understood until just a little bit later how serious it really Full was. Full extent, exactly. And, and what what could have been exactly. Um, because after I had that neck traction, I had to be in a neck brace. So it went from the top of my head all the way down to my hips. And I was in that neck brace for months. And like they really didn't know before this if I was going to walk again or do anything. And I had to undergo lots of physical therapy. So you would have had like a, a big chunk off school as well? Oh, yeah. I had to be homeschooled. And actually, they weren't sure if I would have to redo the grade because I missed so much of it. But I was in a Montessori school. And they were very accommodating and they had teachers come and help me. And so I was able to do a lot of that in the hospital bed. And I was able to do a lot of that at home too. But that initial experience, I think, made me decide to go into medicine. You know, that I I am even now to this day so grateful for all of the people in that hospital who took care of me because I was able to get out, walk. I played sports. I was the captain of my lacrosse team. I've been able to function. And I know that it could not have happened if they did not take care of me. And so I, I think after that, I knew I wanted to go into medicine. I knew that I wanted to 
change people's lives and help them just like those doctors did for me. I really feel like I had a second chance in life. So I worked really hard and I studied a lot and I was fortunate to get into Harvard for college. And that opened up. Just, just, just walked your way into Harvard. There. <laughs> this is probably the best university in the world. <laughs> I, like I said, I studied really hard. I'm not one of those people that things just come natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I have worked hard and I studied. And did, and did you have your your eyes set on like an, an Ivy League school? Like that's where you wanted to go, or how did you? No, end up at not at all. I, it, not at all. I actually was just invited back to my high school to be there. Um, class speaker just like two weeks ago. And, and that was the, one of the questions that they asked is, did you know, you know, when you were in high school that this is what you wanted? And the truth is that I had no idea. I did not even think about or consider applying to a lot of these Ivy League schools or Harvard. I wouldn't have applied because I, I was working hard, but I did not know anybody who had been to those schools I did not even know anybody who had applied to those schools. So it wasn't on my radar, but I had a teacher and a mentor. She was my lacrosse coach and my math teacher. And in my junior year of high school, she just kind of said to me, you know, I think you should apply to Harvard. And I just looked at her like she was crazy. But then, you know, when when somebody tells you that and has belief in you and thinks you can do something, you, you have to give it a try. She could obviously see that maybe the potential that you weren't yet aware of. Oh, totally. I had no idea. I, I really, like I said, I, I would not have even put it on a list of my schools to apply because I wouldn't have, I didn't think it was an option. So I, I always thank her and um, she she really changed, you know, and that, that just goes to show you how important mentors and role models are in life because it just takes one person to say one thing that can change your trajectory. So- I'm very thankful to her and all my mentors. <laughs> so I went to Harvard and at that point, like I said, I knew I wanted to do medicine. So I majored in biological anthropology. Oh, and wow. Okay. That is... Well, I might have some extra questions. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically the study of That's cool. human health, but not just on an individual level, but more on a societal level and, and looking at how we have evolved over time and how we have adapted. Like I always thought that health was important, but... It's not just about my individual health. It's, you know, what about the community of people we are in? Does that change our health and our eating patterns and lifestyle? And it does. And so I I was fascinated with that. I actually took off six months from college. I did a research project. I was looking at nutritional deficiencies and nutritional supplementation in malnourished children in Mexico. So I went to Mexico and then I worked at the Mass General Hospital I, I looked at children's and, and their poop samples. So I, I was kind of doing gut microbiome research before we knew about the gut microbiome, which I think is is just kind of comes full circle. But I was analyzing poop samples from these children who had diarrheal illnesses. We're going to say poop a lot this episode. Yeah, no. Let's just get used just, to it. <laughs> my, my kids think it's just like a normal word. <laughs> so you're analyzing these samples. Yeah. And the World Health Organization at the time was giving vitamin A and zinc supplements to children in undernourished developing countries. And what we were finding is that some children who were getting these supplements were actually getting more diarrheal illnesses. And and we're not really sure exactly. And even now, I'm not really sure why that is, but it actually might be because it's changing the gut microbiome and maybe too much supplements is not healthy either. So that was the research I was doing. Actually, cool story in college is I studied abroad in Australia. There you go. Whereabouts? 
University of New South Wales. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm from Sydney, so that's just down the road. Yeah. I'm from Bondi, and, and that's were you at Randwick, or do you know what campus? I was at the main campus. Yeah, I think that's the Randwick one. I don't. That name. How far is it from the beach? It, it was like maybe a mile and a half. Yeah, two miles. that's I, Randwick, right, okay. right near Coogee Beach. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I lived at Coogee Beach. There you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I thought. I mean, it, it was an awesome experience for anybody who's listening that thinks about going abroad. Actually, it was a new program at Harvard. Not that many people went abroad. And I just really wanted to go and experience a different culture for a few months. And it was awesome. I I don't think I got to travel as much as I should have because I took really hard biology and science courses and they're very tough. (laughs) So I had to study a lot on the weekends there, but it was an awesome experience. And I, I wish I could go back sometime soon. But that that was my experience in college. And and I think Doing a lot of the nutritional research made me interested specifically in gastroenterology. So I went to medical school at Northwestern, which is in Chicago. You know, like any medical school, you have different rotations and you experience different things. I actually thought I was going to go into psychiatry because I, for part of it, I I really like the way people communicate. And I think that that connection you develop with people is very important. But I realized that there's a lot of psych in GI. So, and we'll talk more about some of those things too, but I did an extra year. So I I feel like I've extended a lot of my programs, like instead of four years, I've done additional. I had a grant from the uh, National Institute of Health and Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And I saw a lot of my patients developing fatty liver disease, which in the United States is becoming the number one most common reason people get liver transplants. And I was working in a basic science lab and I was researching why are people getting fatty liver disease? And I was trying to understand the genetics of fatty liver disease. So I worked with mice and I would feed them these high fat, high calorie diets, and then try to see if there were any genes associated with fatty liver disease. Um, And interestingly, we did find a few genes, but they're very small genes. And I think they're so small that they're not really clinically relevant, which goes to show you that many of these disease processes that we are looking for genes are not, there's no direct gene link to it. Mm. It is lifestyle and diet. So you were feeding them this really high fat, high calorie diet. So they were gaining weight, but it was, Mm -hmm. but it had a lot of the calories from fat, right? Correct. And this was inducing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Exactly. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, I've, I've, just, just done some podcasts with the guys from Mastering Diabetes. I'm not sure if you're aware of them, but we were talking about the role of dietary fat and insulin resistance. Yes. And I know that in in a lot of scientific experiments, they do the same thing. They feed a high-fat, high-calorie diet to induce type 2 diabetes. Yes. I think in general, the high-fat, high-calorie diet is good for inducing anything related to the metabolic syndrome, so fatty liver disease and type 2 mm, diabetes. So you get a bit of overlap. Exactly. Um, and so after I graduated college, I went to university of North Carolina for my gastroenterology fellowship. I've always had this innate curiosity in me. Like I really like to know why things are, how they are, what happens, what can I do to change things? So I thought I was going to become an academic gastroenterologist. I took an extra year again, (laughs) and I got my master's. I did something called an MSCR. It's a master's of science in clinical research. And it's 
predominantly for medical professionals who want to conduct research and also understand research. And although I decided not to go in the academic route, I really feel like that background helps me now to understand the research that's out there so I can explain it to my patients. And I specialize. So, okay. So in the States, you do internal medicine, which is normally three years. And that's, is that after medicine? That's after your medical degree. So it's usually four years college, four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine, and three years of gastroenterology fellowship. And so I've done more since I kind of added all these extra years. Um, so you've done over 14 years oh, yeah. of training. Oh, almost 20 in my case. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's definitely been a long haul. But, you know, I feel like in medicine, you're always learning and you're always a student and that's how you should be. So it doesn't really feel like, oh, okay, whew, I've done all that training. Now I can start. Like you're you're learning the whole time. Forever evolving. Exactly. And every experience that you have will shape what you are, you know, who you are, how you interact with your patients and, and what you're doing. So even though it has been a long journey, it, it doesn't feel like that. And I mean, the the evidence as well, like if, if you're practicing using sort of evidence-based practice, it's forever evolving and there's new stuff coming out all the time. Exactly. You're, you have to be constantly reading and learning because otherwise you're going to be practicing patterns and habits that are outdated. And, you know, especially I think in GI like this field is evolving so rapidly and so quickly with the gut microbiome and um, with the irritable bowel syndrome, with, which we'll talk about, you know, things keep changing. If if you did not evolve and practice, you would be just doing a disservice to your patients. Do you learn a lot about the microbiome in your when you were actually specializing in gastroenterology or is that something that you've had to learn more so since you finished your studies? I did not learn that much about it in our medical training. Even as a gastroenterologist, I, th- I think it was just really new. And I think people didn't understand as much about it. We were learning so much. So for me, I I have two daughters and they're three and five years old. And Wow. So you've done all of this <laughs> and had two kids. Yes. God. <laughs> I take my hat off to you. Oh. That's, well, that's incredible. I think that um, that accident and that second chance of life, like I do feel like I just want to make sure I do something really important and constantly going, but I do need to take time to also breathe and relax and be a meditate mom. and be a mom. <laughs> yes. So it is, it is a struggle and um, something that I'm working on, but I think the gut microbiome specifically, I started to delve into because when I became pregnant with my first daughter, It was during my medical training. And I don't even think I really paid attention to the gut microbiome when I was pregnant, but I knew that I was supposed to give her healthy food when she was born. And I also knew that breastfeeding was important, but breastfeeding was tough and challenging. And I was working 80 hours a week, you know, in my medical training and I wasn't sleeping. And so I just started to ask myself, you know, does breastfeeding matter? Is is this important? Is, you know, the stress that I'm putting on myself to try and do these things, does it matter? And that's when I really started to learn about the gut microbiome and how important breastfeeding is for the gut microbiome for your children and how the foods that you give them when they are young really make a huge difference. Those first two to three years of life is when they're 
gut microbiome turns into an adult gut microbiome. And so- So it, high level, what are some of the, the key things that you learned that may have been perhaps different to what you thought? So I, I knew breastfeeding was important, but I didn't understand how important breast milk was. So breast milk contains human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs, and these are basically prebiotics for your baby's gut. So they are directly feeding the gut microbiome and the healthy gut bacteria in your children. So I, I think I just did not understand, one, how that important, important that was. Two, I had no idea that the first two to three years of life is when the baby's gut microbiome developed. Like I thought that, and we can change it later, yes, but those first two to three years of life are critical. So what we feed them in those first two to three years of life makes it important. So I, I know you've had lots of, um, you've had Dr. B and Dr. Desmond on, and they've covered some of these things. And those podcasts were phenomenal. So people listening, if you haven't listened, check theirs out. But you know, we know that feeding our kids plants and vegetables and giving them a diversity of plants and vegetables is the single greatest predictor for good gut health. I didn't realize that if you have good gut health, you can basically have good overall health. I, I really did not know that in my gastroenterology fellowship training. And so these concepts have changed how I eat. You know, so growing up, I was blessed. My mom cooked healthy meals every single day. I did not eat any processed food. It was home cooked, really good Indian food. And then I went to college and university and med school and I did not eat healthy there. So I was eating a lot of animal products. I was eating processed food. Like a typical American diet. Yeah, typical American diet, 60% processed food. How did you food. feel? Did, you, did, did that change? I was always tired. And now whether it's the diet or the lifestyle or, you know, I was always exhausted. My skin was really bad. I had a lot of acne. I just, I actually have a history of eczema and my eczema would flare during these time periods. So I definitely did not feel well. And so my kids switched me to a predominantly plant-based diet. And now I give them a predominantly plant-based diet because I think that's the right thing to do for their health. I, I want them, I think as any mom, as any parent, if we can give our kids a healthy, happy foundation and healthy, happy life, that's all we want. I really believe that it starts with the gut. I bet when you were discovering that, you must have been happy that you'd gone down the gastroenterology path. <laughs> I definitely was. And the only one thing is that I wish I had known about it earlier because I thought that it was important what you did after you gave birth. And now we know that actually in, in moms, what you eat in pregnancy also makes a huge difference. And I was not eating that healthy with my first pregnancy. I was, you know, like they say, oh, you can eat for two and you can oh. have all this unhealthy stuff. It's, it's, it's hindsight. You can, you yeah. can let other, other mothers right. to be no now. We, yes. We, you know, you should never have guilt. Like, and, and I tried to also, even though I could have done things differently and, you know, that's okay. It's okay to start wherever you are because nothing is irreversible. You can still make changes. So I, I don't want ever for any moms to feel guilty about things because I know, you know, how we sometimes put that guilt on ourselves. And Absolutely. We I agree. Yeah. The biological sort of anthropology bit that yeah. you mentioned before, I find that interesting. And I'm, I'm sort of it's taking me to the to my next question. So paleo folks will say that we 
evolved, right, mm-hmm. to eat meat. I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure, but I'm sort of assuming that this is something that you've thought about. Yeah. And specifically, they'll they'll say that our brain evolved as we as we ate meat, and that our brain requires you know fat, fatty foods, fat, fatty animal foods to meet its energy and, and micronutrient requirements. And they, they sort of say that the whole primate thing of eating plants is irrelevant and our digestive tracts are, are geared to eating both animals and plants. What, what do you say in, in response to that? Well, if you look at evolutionarily, first off, people were not living to the age that they're living now. You know, they were living much younger. Their goal was to have children and reproduce, and that was it. They'd probably die by the age of 40, 50. The second thing is they weren't eating as much meat as we are eating now. You know, nowadays, if you look at an American diet, they're having meat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, bacon for breakfast, ham and cheese for lunch, and a burger for dinner. If you look back evolutionarily, the people who were the hunters and gatherers, they were only eating small portions of meat when they could get the meat. And they were having a much healthier, active lifestyle. You know, our entire lifestyle now, we can't compare it to what it was like back then. We are living a totally different lifestyle with highly processed foods, artificial sweeteners and sugars, meats that are pumped with antibiotics. You know, this is, you can't really compare those two. So I hear what they're saying, but I think that we have enough research now that we have evolved the way we are now, but we should not be eating animal products and dairy in our diet. It doesn't seem healthy. And you're right, like the the amount of meat, I mean, there was a study, I think I think Alan Desmond posted yeah. recently, and it showed that just 50 grams a day mm-hmm. of red meat was... And I think that's like one or two bacons. Like that's, that's a pretty small amount, yeah. right? And that was significantly associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease, I think, in that particular study. But there's a lot of similar studies looking at colon cancer with red meat intake as well, oh, yeah. right? Red meat and processed meats are both in, cause uh, increase in colon cancer, so I advise my patients to stay away, so... Yeah, I, I think you can't compare our lifestyle now to the lifestyle back then. Okay, so today we're going to deep dive into irritable bowel syndrome or IBS as some people may know it as. And this is something that I get asked about a lot. It mm-hmm. seems like it's super common. It seems like a lot of people are are suffering from it. And that's, that's usually a, a term that I hear. They say I've been suffering from IBS and, and many are sort of left without an idea as to what to do. It's like they've gone down this path of, of trying to find out a diagnosis. There was no diagnosis. So the doctor said, you've got IBS. And a lot of them are left wondering whether it can be healed or if it's something they have to manage. Is it something they're going to have for the rest of their life? So perhaps to open this up, if you could describe exactly what IBS is and is it something that you see commonly in your clinic? Mm. So first off, I see irritable bowel syndrome every single day. Okay, so irritable bowel syndrome is the most common gastroenterology disease. We see it more commonly than heartburn, reflux, liver disease, pancreatic disease. More than any other disease, every gastroenterologist and every primary care doctor is seeing irritable bowel syndrome. It affects up to 20% of the population. And you're right, people suffer from this. It's a syndrome, so it's not as easy as some of the other disease processes where we can say that there's a direct link between issues or you can do a study and find irritable bowel syndrome. It's a syndrome of abdominal bloating and gas, abdominal discomfort. People often have a change in their bowel habits. They might have constipation or diarrhea. 
there's usually some chronicity. It's not just something that occurs in two or three weeks. It has to be going on at least weekly for about six months. And many people suffer for this for far, far longer. You know, other disease processes, we can do a procedure and a blood test and tell people what they have. And and that's the part that's the most frustrating, I think, for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. You actually don't need to do any testing, but most patients do get testing because we want to make sure that they don't have colon cancer masking their symptoms or inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease. And a lot of these do have some similar presentations. So patients might get an upper endoscopy, colonoscopy, lab work. Many patients even get CAT scans and abdominal ultrasounds. And when you do all of that workup, the workup comes back normal which can be even more frustrating for patients. But it's a good thing, right, doing that and Mm -hmm. ruling out something that could be more sinister. Exactly. So it is important to make sure you don't have those things. But then you're left with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, It's got a bit of a stigma, right, the name, because I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I feel like there's this perception that it's, and this may be speaking more to sort of yesteryear, that when there is no clear testing result that shows a problem that a lot of patients think the doctor uh, believes it's sort of in their head. Yes, that is exactly what happens with irritable bowel syndrome. And, And so if you look back, we actually used to think that was true. Before we really understood and before we are where we are today, we did used to think that irritable bowel syndrome was in people's head and it was kind of like a psychiatric issue. And and we didn't think it was part of the GI territory at all. We said, you know, go follow up with maybe psychiatry or wow. primary care. And, and that's what we thought because we did not know what was going on. I mean, on. that's that's got to be tough for the patient too, right? Extremely. They're getting stomach pain and discomfort and they're being told it's in your brain. And we know now that that is absolutely not true. It is not in people's brains. They are experiencing extreme pain and discomfort. And, you know, on a very, very minimal and mild level, we've all experienced a little bit of this. Like you might um, have experienced butterflies in your stomach or had that like a queasy stomach before an exam or before you're going on a date or before anything major going on. You kind of feel a little uneasy in those butterflies. And that's a very, very mild form of irritable bowel syndrome. When patients have irritable bowel syndrome, they have pain and discomfort. And we actually have done research studies where we've taken small catheters and on the end of the catheter are balloons. And we put them in healthy patients and we put them in irritable bowel syndrome patients and we put it up their colon and we inflate it with air and water. And we've asked the patients, okay, tell us when you start experiencing pain and discomfort. And patients with irritable bowel syndrome will consistently experience pain and discomfort at an earlier threshold compared to normal people. So they're like hypersensitive. Exactly. It's called visceral hypersensitivity. Their nerves have become overstimulated and they experience things in their GI tract more than, you know, people who are healthy normally would. So our colon is always moving and that's called peristalsis. It's propelling food through, it's digesting food. We all have gas and most patients and most people don't experience that on an everyday. You might experience it if you, like I said, you're having a major event coming up, or you might experience it if you have a gastroenteritis, then you'll feel those stomach pains. But patients with irritable bowel syndrome are literally feeling 
their colon contract, they're feeling their food move through, they're feeling that gas and bloating, and and it's real. This this is a real thing. What's the underlying contributing factors? Why would someone go from a healthy gut to a gut that is behaving in that manner and 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 feeling the pain and the discomfort? Yeah. So I think we have to understand the gut a little bit more first and to understand why patients might develop irritable bowel syndrome. So the gut has its own nervous system. It's called the enteric nervous system. There are over 500 million nerves and neurons in our gut. And, you know, many people think about nerves and neurons and they think about the brain and the spinal cord. But we now know is that there's actually five times more nerves in our GI system than in our brain and our spine. And in fact, if you um, get injured and you get brain damage or get brain dead, your GI tract will continue to work and continue to digest on its own because it has its own nerves. So, and, and you know, when you talk about evolution, the enteric nervous system, the gut's nervous system came far before the central nervous system and the nerves for, for brain and spinal cord. So we have evolved to have this gut have its own nervous system. In fact, the gut is the second brain. And many people believe that. And I believe that. And the research shows that the gut, that gut instinct, that gut feeling is true. Our gut can sense if we are nervous, anxious, worried, happy, it can often sense that before our brain does. And a lot of the those you just talked about happy and, and yes. how we're feeling, a lot of those hormones overlap right between the gut and the brain. Exactly. The happy hormone serotonin, 95% of serotonin is made and produced in the gut. So when we talk about irritable bowel syndrome, we talk about this brain-gut connection. And there are nerves that go directly from the brain to the gut and directly from the gut to the brain. It's kind of like a super highway, like really quickly, they're always in communication. They're directly linked, talking to each other all the time. So when patients with irritable bowel syndrome experience discomfort and pain, it can come from the gut first, or it can come from the brain first. We do know that people who have a past history or history of depression or post-traumatic stress disorder the nerves between the gut and the brain are overstimulating and they're firing too aggressively and too much. And so that causes a lot of the discomfort. Actually, it's interesting. There was a study that was done. So one of the reasons that I went into gastroenterology, I don't have a lot of doctors in my family. I have one. His name's Dr. Jay Pastricha. He's also a gastroenterologist and uh, he is currently at Johns Hopkins and he's actually a leader in in this field uh, called neurogastroenterology. He's the head of the center there. He did a study, and I think this is so interesting. So he looked to see when people lie, can your gut hide the lie? So, you know, normally when we do lie detector tests, we look at blood pressure and we look at heart rate and we look at breathing. And so what he did is he looked at all those things, but he also put electrodes on people's stomachs and abdomens. And he found that your gut is a better sensor for your emotions than anything else that we have. Your gut couldn't lie at all. So it, it again, just kind of highlights this fact that that gut instinct and those feelings that you experience, like 
Don't push those aside. Those are real. It's your body trying to tell you something, even if you don't realize yet what is going on. That's incredible. He yeah. could, I'm sure he could get a job down at the FBI or something oh. like that. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, his wife, my aunt, worked for the FBI. Okay. There we go. So, Pacing it together. That's right. So I, we'll see if we start. We actually literally might start using the gut as a better lie detector test in the future. We'll see what happens. So we used to think it was the brain-gut connection. We are realizing now that that's only a piece of the puzzle. There's now the brain-gut microbiome. All three of those things are important. So there's three types of irritable bowel syndrome. I don't know if we, we didn't touch on this too much, but there's irritable bowel syndrome that's predominantly diarrhea. So people go to the bathroom multiple times. There's irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. People don't go often and then mixed. So sometimes they go frequently and sometimes they don't. And that's probably the most common type. But studies have been actually showing that there are different gut microbiome classifications. These are all kind of separate entities. And people who have irritable bowel syndrome compared to normal healthy controls have a totally different gut microbiome makeup. So we know that the gut microbiome plays a really critical role in altering the way we process and the way our nerves process sensation and sensory stimuli. So in terms of, I guess, the etiology and the development of of the microbiome and it changing, right? So you're saying that people that have IBS have different microbiome to someone without. Correct. So- what are the, the contributing factors for that? Why would that? Why would someone develop that? Well, we know that diet plays a large role in that. So diet is a huge factor. And in my opinion, and the research shows that if you want the healthy gut microbiome, then you should eat more fruits and vegetables. It seems like animal products and dairy cause a lot of inflammation in our gut. See, the gut has only one single layer of cells between the colon the inside of the colon and our blood, just one tiny layer. And the way I look at it is, did, did you ever pay, play that game when you were a kid? Um, Red Rover, Red Rover. Okay. Oh, actually, I think it, I did. It, it's I like, it's like this it. game where like you, I have kids, so I'm constantly trying to remember the games we played. But you, you hold hands and you call somebody over, Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over. And uh, they have to like, you hold hands on like a link and then they have to run and break your leg. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. that's kind of what <laughs> I think about. Do they, that sounds familiar. Yeah. That's kind sounds of- Sounds fun. <laughs> no, we should play later. <laughs> that's kind of what I think about with this tiny cell layer in our gut. And actually, you know, a lot of people call this leaky gut irritable bowel syndrome. Leaky gut is kind of the layman term for this. We call it intestinal permeability, that- these cells are supposed to be linked up. They're called tight junctions. And if there is an abnormal microbiome or if something is going on, these tight junctions become leaky or become a little bit loose and more permeable to allow things to pass through. So we do know that diet and plant-based diet helps to hold that integrity together. And we know that animal products help to kind of destroy that integrity. We also know that stress plays a role also in destroying that integrity. So it's kind of multifactorial, but a lot of different things can help to hold that integrity together so that people don't develop irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. 
In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. We're sort of talking now, I guess, about people developing it, you know, as a age. But what is the, what is the common age? Is there a common age where people would develop or, or are more likely to, to develop IBS? Is it more common in females or males? Can it can IBS be found in a in a newborn? I don't know if it can be found in a newborn. In general, the average age is like twenty to fifties. It is more commonly seen in women, but can be seen in both women and men. And I will say that even though the maybe the average age is between 20 to 50, I'm seeing it in older people and I'm also seeing it in a lot of younger people. And I think that's because when there's this brain-gut microbiome connection, so the microbiome is one part, but the brain is another. And we're all living in this like hyper stressed out environment. So I do see a lot of kids from who are in college and and I hear about in the pediatrician's office, they're even seeing irritable bowel syndrome more often because, you know, nowadays, like if you're working, you can't even get away from work because people know you have your phone and you can't take that step away to give your body and your mind and your brain time to calm down and your body needs that. And stress evolutionarily played a critical role. We, you know, we call it the fight or flight mechanism. When you are being chased after an animal, you your gut would shut down because the blood and your resources had to go to your legs so you could you know, run away. And now with this hyper-stressed out lives that we live, our gut is constantly shutting down and it's either getting overstimulated or shutting down and it's not working properly. So interestingly, one of the treatments that we use for irritable bowel syndrome and to kind of help patients with irritable bowel syndrome is we recommend yoga, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, deep breathing. All of these things have actually been shown to help reduce symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. So the idea is there is get the person relaxed mm-hmm. and in doing so turn their digestion back, digestive system back on. Exactly. And and like I mentioned, there's hyperstimulation of the nerves. So it calms the nerves down so that you're not constantly experiencing discomfort and pain and feeling all your food mm-hmm. move through you. It's really interesting. And you know, it, it's it's also interesting because a common complaint that I get from people or a common thing they say is you know, if I eat this one food, I'm fine. But if I eat that same food on a different day, I experience pain. And they're trying to piece this together and figure out what foods are involved. And that's because it's not always the food. It's the environment in which we are eating. Did you eat that food and that meal when you were rushed, running out the door, standing up and eating on the go? Or did you sit down enjoy that meal, have fun, relax with family and friends, because the way that your body deals with that food and handles it will determine whether or not you are going to experience irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. Like I think most people would experience something like that to some extent, even if you don't have IBS, right? I know that if I am stressed, really stressed, or perhaps I've 
not had an alter altercation, but perhaps I've had a really deep conversation with someone and, and disagreeing or whatever, and then you're eating and you eat your food too fast and you're not mindful. I, I can quite often feel that my digestion feels different. That's right. So you can only imagine if people are experiencing that over and over and over again, and that those nerves just keep firing off, they experience pain faster and more intense than you would otherwise. I guess the other the other thing that we haven't really touched on yet, but is probably significant is exposure to antibiotics or chemicals in the in the food system and in our environment. Antibiotics can destroy our gut microbiome. When we talk about the gut microbiome and its role in developing irritable bowel syndrome, antibiotics kill it. One course of ciprofloxacin, which is the most commonly used antibiotic in the United States, will um, destroy your gut microbiome. It can take years for it to redevelop. And actually the studies are showing that your gut microbiome will never develop properly again because now you have selected ciprofloxacin resistant antibiotics. So, you know, and and the problem is, is that the average American, and it, it might be similar in other Western countries as well, is the average American gets about 30 rounds of antibiotics in their lifetime. Okay. That's insane. 30 rounds of antibiotics, but it's not that they're always getting it in the prescriptions. They're getting it in our food, in the water, in our meats. So they're they're just constantly being exposed mm. to antibiotics. And antibiotics is like some of these other things that we talked about, causes dysbiosis. So dysbiosis is one of the hallmarks of the irritable bowel syndrome. So again, we all have good bacteria. We all have bad bacteria. Um, there are 200 trillion bacteria, so a lot. And when the that's in balance, then we live a healthy lifestyle. But if we do things that cause the imbalance, like antibiotics, stress, the food that we eat, then we get dysbiosis. And that's the medical term that can cause a little bit of this leaky gut and inflammation. So on antibiotics, what's what's your sort of position as a as a mother and, and as a doctor, obviously they are incredibly important in some situations, oh, right? Yeah. So what, what's your overall position on them? I think that you have to take antibiotics when you have to take them. You know, if you have a bacterial pneumonia, you need to take a course of antibiotics. If you have a disease process, I mean, antibiotics have added years to our lives. They serve a purpose. The problem that we are seeing is that in the United States, at least, they are being overutilized and mm -hmm. overused. You do not need antibiotics for viral illnesses. Viral gastroenteritis does not need antibiotics. Bacterial gastroenteritis might need antibiotics. So you have to just know that everything that you do is going to have some risks and benefits. Take it if and when you need to. And then try to do everything you can afterwards to make sure that your gut microbiome is healthy and resilient. You know, make sure that especially after you do a course of antibiotics, that you're eating fermented foods, you're eating that diversity in fruits and vegetables because you want to try and do everything you can to get those good, healthy gut bacteria Try that a little bit harder. Exactly. I, yeah, totally. I, I mean, you sort of talk then about over being over-prescribed and, and not to take them if it's not absolutely necessary. But I guess that can be hard sometimes for patients to navigate if, if they're being told to take something by their doctor. Is it is it if you're unsure, get a second opinion or what would you sort of recommend? Or Listen to your doctor and hear what they have to say because actually in – 
the states, I think that a lot of the doctors are also realizing how we are overutilizing antibiotics. There's a lot of education going around in the hospitals even and outpatient about making sure we're not giving them unnecessarily. So there's a lot more heightened awareness. Sometimes what happens is patients come requesting antibiotics. And I, I think we see that also quite often because they're ill and, and I, I don't fault them. They're ill. They're not feeling well. They think that a course of antibiotics might get them to feel better. And it's our responsibility as doctors to, to educate them about when is the right time and not the right time to take an antibiotic. That's good that that's starting to change a little bit. So the, the big question that I have and, and probably the listeners are thinking, is it possible for someone with IBS to, to heal their gut? Or is it something that they need to learn to manage for life? And, and what does the science suggest is the best approach? So irritable bowel syndrome is chronic. And to some degree and some level, patients might always experience some irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. But the goal is to manage those symptoms, to try to heal the gut so that they're not in constant pain. Like the average patient with irritable bowel syndrome misses two days of work a month. They've done a number of quality of life studies, and they've shown that patients with irritable bowel syndrome have a much worse quality of life. They're not feeling well. They're in pain. They're frequently going in and out of the emergency room and the primary care doctors and our goal is to get them to be able to live their lives healthy and normally like they would. And so we have a lot of medications that we can use for patients with ha that have irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea or constipation. One of the things that we do is we start with by giving fiber. You know, fiber is a great way to help regulate your bowels and has been shown to help patients with irritable bowel syndrome. You know, we in the Western world, we live in a fiber deficient you know, we're all fiber deficient and the United States is definitely a fiber deficient nation. And when we eat fiber, which we only get from fruits and vegetables, that is a prebiotic that is converted into short chain fatty acids in our gut. So it feeds the gut microbiome. And that's one great way to strengthen your gut microbiome. So I, I recommend fibers ideally from the fruits and vegetables, but if not, then they can take soluble fiber is a supplement. And that's just a generic psyllium fiber. So they can take that to help. So diet is important. Fiber is important. De-stressing is important. So they, there are ways to manage it. There is no cure. Like there's no magic pill for irritable bowel syndrome. I wish there was because I know how common this is and how many millions of people are being affected by irritable bowel, but it needs to be just like this is a multifactorial disease and people are experiencing symptoms from the microbiome and the brain and the gut. Also, same way, it has to be done in lots of levels to, to help get them to heal and to feel better. So tell me about the, I often hear about the low FODMAP diet, right? And, and being a diet that can be quite effective for, for patients with IBS. How does that work? Is it something that you use clinically? So low FODMAP, so FODMAP stands for fermentable oligodimonosaccharides and polyols. It's a mouthful, so we'll call it FODMAPs. So there was a study that was done in 2015, and it was published in Gastroenterology, which is one of our premier journals. It was actually done out of um, Melbourne, Australia. Mm. It, was, it was done at Monash University. Mon that's right. right, yes. Actually, 
I transferred after a year. I was doing physiotherapy and I transferred to law uh-huh. at Monash. Oh, okay. But I've got far too much of a science brain, so I lasted like three weeks and I went back <laughs> to okay. physiotherapy. But that was at Monash Uni. Yes, yeah. yeah. So they, they did this study and, okay, let, let's just take a step back. So what are FODMAPs? FODMAPs are short carbo, short chain carbohydrates, short, short carbohydrates that are not easily digestible in our GI system and in our gut. So what happens is we eat foods that have FODMAPs, they get into our gut and the bacteria ferment it. And so these foods do cause bloating and gas and some people can experience discomfort. So at Monash University, they said, okay, well, let's take patients with irritable bowel syndrome and let's take healthy patients and let's see if we put them on low FODMAP diets, do their symptoms get better? And they did find that patients with irritable bowel syndrome on a low FODMAP diet had statistically significant and clinically relevant improvement in their bloating, gas, and discomfort. So one thing I will say about that is that there were only 30 patients with irritable bowel syndrome in the study, and there were only eight controls. But this research, you know, like I said, there's no magic pill. There is no easy fix for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So when this study came out, a lot of us, myself included, were very excited. And we thought, you know, we have a diet that might help patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And so many gastroenterologists started to use this almost as first-line therapy. Okay, you have irritable bowel syndrome, here's a low FODMAP diet, try it, and then, and then let's see. However, what we are realizing now is that the low FODMAP diet is actually not a healthy diet. I look at it like this and I tell my patients, the low FODMAP diet will give you short-term gain for long-term pain. You might feel better in the short term, but what you're doing to your gut is actually very harmful. The research studies have shown that if you follow a low FODMAP diet, you get elevated inflammatory markers, specifically IL-6 and IL-8. You get changes in your gut microbiome. You get decreased gut microbial diversity, which is harmful. You get lower bifidobacterium, which is one of the healthy gut bacteria. You get lower short-chain fatty acids, which we know is helpful for promoting good bacteria. So, And you can develop nutritional deficiencies. You can develop vitamin A, zinc, iron, B12 vitamin deficiencies. So now the, the research is showing, now that we've done more research, we are learning more about the gut microbiome. I think a lot of us have changed and I really do not recommend my patients follow a low FODMAP diet. If you look at the guidelines, the World Gastroenterology Association and the American Gastroenterology Association, they all say that they, they don't really recommend the low FODMAP diet. It's considered a second-line therapy if other things fail. And then they say that the evidence is weak at best. Because what's happening when you're doing a low FODMAP diet, some parts are great. You're cutting out dairy, which I do encourage patients to do because dairy can be quite inflammatory. You're cutting out artificial sweeteners, which I also think is a healthy life decision and, and life choice and good for your gut health. But the problem is, is you're cutting out an enormous number number of fruits and vegetables. You're cutting out legumes, broccoli, beets, asparagus, and these are healthy. And, and we know that diversity in fruits and vegetables is important. 
So if you're limiting that, it's not creating a good environment for your gut health. So I now kind of shy away from the low FODMAP diet. There was a study that was done recently, and they compared the low FODMAP diet to yoga over 12 weeks. And this was done in irritable bowel syndrome patients. And they found that the same results were achieved with yoga as were a low FODMAP wow. diet. And the yoga group was just sort of continuing their, their current diet that they had or a controlled diet? No, they continued their current diet. Wow. So That's crazy. I, I think there are harmful side effects and risks of doing the low FODMAP diet. There are no harmful risks and side effects of doing yoga. So I, I don't encourage patients to be on the low FODMAP diet. So you say it's the it's like the second line approach. If, yeah. Is, is the first first approach, I'm assuming it's not yoga, but it may be including yoga, yes. but from a food point of view, what is what is your advice for someone that comes in with IBS? Sure. So my advice for first line for patients with irritable bowel syndrome, so first off, they have to have the workup, right? I want to make sure that they don't have celiac disease or any other disease process. But after that, I do encourage them to go toward a plant-based diet. I recommend that they cut out dairy. We know that dairy is is inflammatory and ca- can cause a lot of bloating and gas. Many people have lactose intolerance and don't even know. I do like the part of the low FODMAP diet where you cut out artificial sweeteners, carbonated beverages. We have a serious problem in the States where people are drinking Coke and Pepsi and all these sodas all the time. That is not good for our gut health. And the carbonation ex- itself can cause a lot of abdominal bloating and discomfort. So I recommend cutting that out. And I recommend slowly increasing the fruits and vegetables and minimizing the animal products so that you're getting these prebiotics, the healthy foods that you need to promote your gut health and the gut microbiome. And and I incorporate fiber. So that's kind of my first line therapy for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Maybe I'll take a step back for a second if, if it's okay with you. And talk. <laughs> this show is all about you. You can, do, you can do whatever you would like. I want to talk for one second about constipation Let's because there's irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. But I want to be clear: not all constipation is the same. There are different types of constipation. So I show the Bristol stool chart. Have you heard of this? I have. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we have it on in all of our exam rooms and I carry it with, it with me when I see my patients. And if you haven't heard of it, Google it. It's fascinating. Yes. So it basically yeah. ranks your poop from one to seven from um, constipated to diarrhea. Your goal is to have a Bristol stool scale of three to four. But um, many people come in on the constipated side. So that's important because it's got very flavorful, descriptive wording. And uh, like it'll to say that your poop is like rabbit pellets or like a snake and smooth and silky. Um, and it's got photos. But that's important because not all constipation is the same. So there are two main reasons that people get constipated and two types of constipation. One is you have a really slow colon. Things just move slowly, and so you're not going very frequently. This is called uh, medically colonic inertia. I call it a lazy gut. Things just move slowly. The second type of constipation is actually in your pelvic floor. Your muscles don't work. All of us have two muscles in our bottom. We have an internal muscle and an external muscle, and they open up when you want to have a bowel movement, and they close when you don't, so you are not leaking all the time. And in some people, they don't open up when you want to poop. They actually 
clamp down and close. So people feel like they're pushing and straining and they're not completely evacuating. And that's called pelvic floor dysinertia. I consider that to be like a tight ass, but not the kind that you, Simon, or I want. (laughs) I I want a tight ass, but not this kind. I don't want to have constipation issues. And the reason I think this is important is because if you have this tight ass or pelvic floor dysinertia, you actually benefit from physical therapy and biofeedback, retraining those muscles. And many people with this pelvic floor dysinertia get accidentally mislabeled as irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. I'm sorry, irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, but it's not the truth. They just have constipation. They're not able to poop. And anybody who's constipated is going to get bloated and feel gassy and experience pain. So sometimes it's important to make that distinction because the treatment is going to be different. One is physical therapy. And one are these things that we're talking about where we're focusing on some lifestyle changes to help. So that was just my aside on constipation. I'm glad we went there. Sure. I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad we went back there. <laughs> this is probably more poop conversation than you've ever wanted. Yeah, I think to... we're, we're smashing records here. Yeah, oh. yeah I, I have kids. We talk about poop more than I thought was possible. <laughs> <laughs> and they want me to see it all the time, too. They're like, look at this one. <laughs> oh, they're proud of it. <laughs> okay, so we've sort of spoken to what your first line nutritional advice is. Yes, plant-based. But, but let's say someone is is plant-based, is still experiencing IBS type mm-hmm. type symptoms. What what else can they look at? What how can they troubleshoot? Is there some common yeah. things that you find people could could address or may not be doing 100% correctly? So 60% of patients with irritable bowel syndrome do have some sort of or have reported some sort of food sensitivity. So sometimes I will look at the low FODMAP diet and I'll tell them, you know, I don't want you to follow this. First off, it was meant to be an elimination diet for only a short period of time. Many people who follow it do it incorrectly and they do it for months. That is incorrect. It was never even designed like that. I mean, like you said, that that would set you up for dysbiosis and potentially nutritional deficiency, right? Exactly. It was meant as a short-term elimination, almost to reset your gut and then to incorporate the foods back in and reintroduce those foods. Instead of doing that strict elimination, I do have patients look at it from time to time and I'll say, you try and see what foods might be sensitive to you because everybody is different. Maybe you don't need to eliminate all 50 foods, but take a look and say, okay, every time I have these three or four foods, I get bloated and I get gassy. And I also try to um, relate to my patients that some level of bloating and gas is normal. You know, all of us, if we eat beans and broccoli and legumes, like we are going to experience some bloating and gas because there is bacterial fermentation going on and that's healthy. Also resetting people's expectations because some people think that if they have bloating, then something's wrong. And that's not always the case. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. 
So when you say that's healthy and, and you mentioned before that through that process you get like production of short-chain fatty acids. Correct. I think, I mean, we've spoken on this show a little bit about those before but maybe just sort of high level explain why that fermentation and short-chain fatty acids are important. So short-chain fatty acids tighten up those tight junctions and the cell lining between the colon and the bloodstream. So that's really helping to prevent harmful bacteria and harmful toxins from going back and forth. So that's really important. Second thing is short-chain fatty acids feed the good, healthy gut bacteria that we have. So that, that's the probably the most important part about the short-chain fatty acids. And then they also reduce inflammation. So they help in all of those areas. And you don't just get short-chain fatty acids from eating. So another area you can increase your short-chain fatty acids like butyrate is exercise. So exercise is actually, when we're talking about first line, second line for irritable bowel, exercise is considered first line treatment and management. It's recommended per our guidelines that patients exercise around 30 to 40 minutes a day, five times a week, especially patients with the constipation predominant irritable bowel syndrome can often get improvement because it kind of stimulates their gut to Mm. move. So exercise is actually a recommended therapy for irritable bowel So get moving. If you can, throw a bit of yoga in and eat some more plants. Definitely. What about gluten? Because this one often comes up and it's quite topical. It seems like people have a, a whole lot of differing opinions on it. Where, where do you sit on it? Where, where does the science sort of lie? Is it important when we're talking about IBS and the conversation that we're having here? So first off, if you have celiac disease, you have a gluten allergy and you cannot take gluten. Okay, that's for patients with celiac disease because if you consume gluten with celiac disease, you increase your, you increase your chance for developing small bowel cancers and lymphoma. Okay, if you do not have celiac disease, you could potentially have gluten sensitivity. Some people do report discomfort and bloating and gas when they eat gluten. I personally think gluten is healthy and it's important. And if you can eat it, you should. There was a research study. I think they looked at like 100,000 people and they wanted to see if people cut out gluten, what it did to their cardiovascular disease and their heart health. And they found that people who cut out gluten in this 100,000 patient population, they were more likely to have heart attacks. And I think the reason is, is because gluten and contains a lot of fiber and prebiotics. So like I do not follow a gluten-free diet. I do not recommend a gluten-free diet unless it's necessary. Um, I think gluten is actually healthy for patients. Now, many patients with irritable bowel syndrome might have some gluten sensitivity. And in that case, if that's your food sensitivity, then yes, limit it or eat it in moderation. But if you do not have a problem, like I I see many people who are like, I want to eat a healthy lifestyle. And so I've gone gluten-free. And then I'll ask them, you know, have you ever had symptoms when you eat gluten? And they say no. So I don't think it's a healthy lifestyle choice to go gluten-free. Beautifully summarized. Yeah. What about these animal products that you sometimes see, or I definitely see that are promoted for gut health? I see, you know, whether it's sort of fatty foods like or, or salmon or bone broth or collagen even. Like is there science behind these foods and healing healing the gut? Well, I think you, you asked the right question. Is there science to back those things up? And 
you know, like I said, I, I've kind of spent my whole career asking those questions and doing the research. And I've not found good research to support those things. And and maybe it's out there, but I haven't seen it. So, you know, I, I don't think there is good evidence right now to support some of those things. I'd have to see the research. I haven't seen anything to support it. Finally, is is there anything that you think that we have perhaps missed, which you think would be useful for someone with IBS to consider? You know, one question I get asked a lot is about poop transplantation and stool transplants for irritable bowel. Because I, I don't know about you guys, but that's like the rage for us. Like everywhere you look, people are talking about poop transplants. And actually there was an article not related to irritable bowel syndrome, but there was an article I read a few days ago about like mediocre level athletes who were trying to get poop from elite athletes. I don't know if you read this and they're calling it poop doping. (laughs) (laughs) So they're trying to get poop from elite athletes in hopes that maybe it will help them run faster or bicycle harder because there's this thought that, you know, the gut microbiome is related to everything. So, so people come asking me, you know, they'll say, I have a healthy friend and can I take their poop transplant? So I think that's important to talk about. There've been a few studies that have come out recently looking at poop transplants in irritable bowel syndrome patients. Two of them were done just last year in 2018. The first one took healthy poop from healthy controls and they put it in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And they actually found that at a three and six month mark, there was reduction in symptoms. People with IBS felt better. So that suggests that maybe in the future, this might be some sort of treatment. So is the idea there that when you put some of the bacteria in, it then proliferates? Exactly. So we actually do use poop transplants for Clostridium difficile infection. That's the only thing that's approved right now in the States at least. So we do use that regularly for people. and, And that's a really bad diarrheal illness that can cause colitis and death. So where do the donors come from? Is it like a, uh, like a blood bank, but for poo? Exactly. There are donors. Yeah. There, there's a donor bank. And before there was a donor bank, we used to ask people to ask their friends or family, and we would actually do it in our gastroenterology lab. We'd have them bring a blender and we would <laughs> mash out the poo. <laughs> Guys, get, a, get, a, get involved, get involved. But you, Not the you, blender you, you're you, using for your smoothies. Okay, guys. And, and, and you got to have a three or four on the Bristol, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's your goal. That's what you want. So um, so that that study was kind of cool, though. It showed the patients were getting better after six months. But then they, what they looked is they looked at those people a year later and a year later, they were back to their normal mm-hmm. symptoms. So it's kind okay. of like a temporary thing. Maybe if patients are having like an extreme attack, we might be able to use it. So that was the first study. And then, you, you would do that, though, just I just want to to really nail this one home. You would do that under the guidance of a gastroenterologist, not at home. Definitely not at home under the guidance of a gastroenterologist. And currently it is not approved as a treatment. We are in the research okay, phase. So only. more to come for that one. Yes. Okay. So this is like the cool cutting edge stuff on what's to come maybe in the next few years. Mm-hmm. So then there was another study also published last year where they put healthy poop into patients with irritable bowel syndrome, and they looked at symptoms and the gut microbiome. And this is really interesting. They did not find any improvement in symptoms, even though they found that the patient's gut microbiome changed. And so what that tells me is kind of just to, you know, bring this home again, 
it's not just the gut microbiome. It has to do with the food you're eating. Because if these people who had these transplants go back to their normal lifestyle, their normal food, their normal physical activity, their normal stress level, things revert back to normal. They're not getting improvement. So I think it's just, you know, when I talk to my patients and I talk to people, I I tell them, I want you to make simple, sustainable changes to st- and, and stress less, like stress-free. I don't know if that's realistic, but stress less because all of these things are going to affect your brain, your gut, your gut microbiome. Mm. It's like a, it's, a, it's a real behavioral change approach, right? Exactly, and, and a lifestyle approach. Mm. One thing that we didn't touch on, which I just thought about, do you, do you place any emphasis on, a, on like the way that you prepare your food and, and can that affect how you digest it? Yeah, that definitely can. Actually, patients with irritable bowel syndrome, many of them might benefit from seeing a nutritionist and a dietitian, and we often send patients there. But yes, the way you prepare your food can make a difference. And it's interesting because I am now learning the science behind some of the things that I used to see my grandmother do. So for example, my grandmother used to always soak lentils and kidney beans overnight. And now what I'm realizing is when you soak those kidney beans and lentils overnight, those oligosaccharides are actually water soluble. So the water pulls some of those oligosaccharides out of the beans so that you're not experiencing as much bloating, gas, and discomfort. So that's one way you can prepare your food and you'll experience less bloating and gas. And it's kind of like doing things on a low FODMAP, but healthy. Another thing too, which is commonly used in, in, in Indian culture is pickling our food. And the research shows that when you pickle foods like onions or carrots or beets, it actually reduces the FODMAP quantity. And it helps so that if you might not be able to eat those foods normally, but when you pickle them and put them in vinegar and it changes the pH, you can now eat them and you're getting that diversity of fruits and vegetables, but you're not going to experience the bloating and the gas. So I, I think there's a lot about the way we process food. And I really believe too, it's how we eat. Mm. I, I am a big proponent. Like anytime I see somebody standing up and eating, I get so angry. <laughs> like just sit down, like take that 10 minutes and sit down because how we make the food and what we are doing when we are eating, it all matters, you know? It's a, I mean, this condition and this discussion overall is just a great reminder of how far how much things have changed from traditional times to now and like what you're talking about the it's amazing how a lot of these traditional ways of preparation they just had it right (laughs) i i honestly can't believe it and i was talking with my mom the other day too and she was like you know we we did not understand what they were doing but these are traditions that were passed along you know Mm -hmm. you know our grandparents and great-grandparents before there were fridges and things like that they had to do these type of things these things kept getting passed along and I never understood the science. So I think I personally have a greater appreciation for what my mom and grandparents and people are doing. And I think they're happy now too, that I appreciate all the stuff they were doing. I think we might need to summarize this one in a PDF or I'll I'll put a blog on plantproof.com and with all your contact details as well. But if anyone would like to connect with you online, what's the best way of doing that? Best way is Doc Serena, D-O-C-S-A-R-I-N-A 
on Instagram or Facebook. And you can reach me there when I try to do it as often as I can in between my day job and my kids. So well, you're doing a fantastic job. Thank you very much for Thank coming you so much. on the show today. And I'm, I'm pumped to have you back on. We, we've, we've hit one topic today, but uh, no doubt in the future we can, we can jump over Absolutely. and dive into some of the other common issues that you're seeing clinically day to day. Definitely love to. You know, my goal is to try and educate people and help people. And I, that's why I love what you're doing with this podcast, because you are making such a tremendous difference in people's lives. And you really you are doing a remarkable job. So. Thanks, Serena. It means a lot coming from you. Well, there we go, friends. I love the way Serena broke down IBS and recommends a holistic approach to the management of this disorder. Clearly, nutrition is super important, but so is managing one's stress and doing regular exercise. If you know anyone with IBS, please share this episode. I think they will find it tremendously useful, particularly if they have been led somewhat astray online and have spent a lot of money trying to reduce their symptoms with no luck. Finally, if you have any questions or feedback, we would love to hear from you. Send us a DM on Instagram or tag us in your stories. And if you haven't yet and have a spare minute, please leave a review on iTunes. Literally, we'll take you about one minute and it helps the show reach more people. That's it for today, friends. Catch you next week.